Let's look at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 this evening. Peter is continuing on with that theme of what it is to live as sojourners who are suffering in this fallen world. And now he says to those churches and to those believers that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, I have read over the years many of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, and one of the ones that I read early on as I began to study Edwards' um, sermons and his theology was a sermon called The Preciousness of Time. It's not a long sermon. Edwards preached it in the 1730s, and it is one of those sermons that makes you stand back and assess what you're doing with your life. In this sermon, Edwards is impressing on his hearers what it means to count the time, to number the days, to redeem the time. And he says to them at one point, time is very short, which renders it very precious. The scarcity of any commodity occasions men to set a higher value upon it, especially if it's necessary and they cannot do without it. Time is more to be prized by men because a whole eternity depends upon it. And yet we have but a little of time. Our life, what is it? It's a vapor which appears for a short time and then vanishes away. It's but a moment to eternity. Time is so short and the work which we have to do in it is so great that we have none of it to spare. The work which we have to do to prepare for eternity must be done in time or it never can be done. It is found to be a work of great difficulty and labor and therefore that for which time is the more requisite. Now, some of you may have read Edwards' resolutions. They've been reprinted in numerous volumes in recent years, and when Edwards was a younger man than the time when he preached that sermon, he had a number of resolutions, and some of those resolutions are a bit too stringent. Some of those resolutions, you can tell, are from a man who had not a fully developed mind in the truths of Jesus and the gospel, yet who was zealous for godliness, but two of Edward's resolutions coincide very well with what he says in his sermon, The Preciousness of Time. In the seventh resolution, Edward says, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And then resolution 19 Edwards said, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. I think that's interesting that what Edwards is doing is he's saying the time is short. The time is short for all of us. You don't know when your last hour is, when your last breath will be. There was a minister in the PCA not many years ago in Florida who was preaching to live is Christ and to die is gain, and he died in the pulpit while preaching that sermon. The time is short. 
And Edwards says, you know, we don't know how much time we have. We don't know um, how, how many days we have. And even if we have a full life, it's very short. It's very short. It's a breath. And then he says, and we don't know when Christ would come again. Now, Peter is doing something strikingly similar as he writes to these men and women who are suffering here during the time of their sojourning. And notice what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And then he gives them three directives. Now, what we're going to see tonight is that Peter is going to take this idea of living at the end of the ages and living in light of the fulfillment of all that Christ has done and in light of the imminency of Christ's return and in light of the fact that God is going to consummate all things in Christ and then what impact that should have on our lives. And we're going to see tonight these three things. First, we're going to see that we are to calculate and understand the time. Secondly, we are to live in all of our relationships in light of the time. And finally, we are going to see that we are to seek the glory of God in Christ in light of the brevity of the time that God has given us. Well, notice as Peter begins to transition to the end of this book, and this is probably the the, the final transition into the concluding section that he introduces something that he has woven all through this book. If you took time and you went through the book, the letter of 1 Peter, and you looked at all the times that Peter mentioned the second coming and the consummation and what he begins back in chapter 1, you would see that this is a pervasive theme for Peter. Notice that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says that God the Father brought us forth again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, and here it is, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There at the beginning of this book, Peter has said, God's purpose is to keep his people, to preserve the inheritance, to keep us until this final salvation that is ready to be revealed. And then in chapter 2, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter speaks of the second coming as the day of visitation. And then here in chapter 4, there's numerous references. Verse 5, he says that those who persecute Christians will give an account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's an imminency. God is ready to come. The Lord is at hand, James will say. The time is short. Then in verse 7, the verse that we have in front of us, the end of all things is at hand. And then in verse 13 of chapter 4, Peter says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he speaks of the glory that is going to be revealed. And then in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, when the chief shepherd appears. So Peter has very clearly put before us the importance of understanding that the consummation, that the end of all things is near. Now, there are a litany of biblical scholars who have criticized the apostles, and they say, oh, foolish apostles. That was 2,000 years ago, and Jesus hasn't come. How could you speak of the end of all things coming? And what we have to understand is that Peter and the other apostles were very sophisticated theologically. They, they had a 
deep, spiritual, biblical, theological sophistication. They understood exactly what they were saying. Peter wasn't saying, Jesus is coming in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. Peter was among the apostles who were with Jesus leading up into Pentecost when they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know times and seasons. Jesus had said to them, you will not know when I come. Jesus had told them all through his earthly ministry that he would come quickly, that he would come as a thief in the night, that they would not know what hour the master would come, that they were to watch, that they were to be on guard. But Peter also knew that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and in the ascension of Jesus, that what the apostle Paul talked about had come. These were the last days. You know, I often... often push myself back into my own little corner and decide how I want to respond to someone whenever they say to me, don't you think we're in the last times? And I want to sort of chuckle and say, well, yes, I do think we're in the last times, and I think we've been in the last times since Jesus ascended, because the way the New Testament constantly speaks about the end of the age is that period between the first and second coming of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews will tell at the very beginning of the book that God spoke in various times and in various ways to the fathers by the prophets in these last days has spoken to us by his son. Now that's important because that not only means that we ought to reckon ourselves to be living at the end of the ages and we ought to reckon ourselves to be those who may very well see the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. We don't know when he's going to come but we know that God has fulfilled his redemptive plan. Redemption has been accomplished. The work that God predicted in that old age, that old era of the old covenant, has been fulfilled in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews will say that Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The coming of the Redeemer was the mark that God was fulfilling his redemptive purposes and that what Christ accomplished would only find subsequent addition in the full redemption when he comes again in power and glory. But it also means that we're to calculate that our lives are short and that the time here we have is short and that we are to make use of this time. I think when Peter tells us that we are to calculate and understand the time, we are to do that theologically. These things have happened. Paul tells uh, the, the church in Corinth, he told them that the things that happened in the Old Testament to Israel in the wilderness, in the book of Numbers, and elsewhere in the Pentateuch, were written down, Paul says, for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, the apostles are writing all of this in the first century. What's fascinating is that in our day, people get consumed with eschatology and they get consumed with current event eschatology and they get consumed with trying to calculate based off of some kind of political movement or shifts or some other feature when the end is going to be and instead they miss the point. The point is that God has told us the ends of the ages have already come. We are already in the last times. We are already in the last days and the implication is not to sit back and write books and put put numeric years on when we think Jesus is coming back, but that we are to live as those who have been redeemed, as those who are expectant, pursuing holiness. I would challenge you 
to look at the fact that a third of the New Testament is eschatological. It, it has an end-time focus. It is speaking about the consummation, the glory to come, the return of Christ, the bringing in of the new heavens and the new earth, and without fail, and this is the big point, without fail, each and every time that end-time glory hope is set before the people of God, it always has an application to the way that we live our lives in the here and now and whether we pursue holiness or not. The Apostle John does this for us very clearly. He says, now we, we don't know what we will be. We know that we are children of God, and we know that when he's revealed, we'll see him as he is, and we'll be like him. And then John says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, it's, it's ironic that in all the debates over the millennium and millenarianism and eschatology and all the different debates that rage in the church among theologians, very few people stop to say there is one general principle that every Christian should cherish. It is God's big principle in telling us about that future consummate glory, and that is that we ought to be people living godly lives in light of what Christ has done for us already. It's how the already of Christ's finished work affects us as we press on as pilgrims. Um, we live between the ascension and the return of our Lord, and we live in light of his sufferings and glory. We live in light of the fact that he has finished the work of redemption, is risen and reigning, and is stretching his kingdom throughout his wor this world. And so then secondly, Peter is going to tell us how living in light and understanding the, the time that we live and the era in which we live and the, the fulfillment of the redemption that we have in Christ and the waiting for that consummation, how that's supposed to affect us first in all of our relationships in time and secondly in seeking the glory of God and of Christ. Now notice that what Peter does now is he gives a series of imperatives. He gives a series of commands. He first says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, you may... And it would be good to do this whenever you get a cluster of commands in one of the letters and one of the epistles. It's always good to say, how are these working together? How are these fitting together? I think that the overall structure of what Peter's doing is he's saying, knowing that we are living at the end of the ages, knowing that we are living, um, we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have fallen, knowing that the end of all things is at hand, live as believing sojourners in a godly way, in an appropriate way, in all of your relationships, whether it is vertical or whether it is horizontal. Notice the first thing he tells us is that we are to consider how living in light of the end of all things being at hand in our relationship with the Lord. Now, he only gives us one, one application to how realizing that the end of all things is at hand should impact our relationship with the Lord. And that is probably the most important. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and literally clear-minded 
in your prayers. Be self-controlled and clear-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, Peter was a man, and we've talked about this through the series. So much of what Peter writes is in light of Peter's own failures. And as we think about Peter and his relationship with the Lord, and we think about um, Simon's, Simon Peter's struggles, our mind with regard to prayer automatically goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there at the brink of Jesus' sufferings for Simon Peter and for us, there at that moment when Jesus is entering in on his sufferings, and he is longing for his apostolic band to be there with him, praying with him, calling on the Lord together with him, Simon Peter and the other apostles can't even stay awake for an hour. I love Jesus' response. He says, could you not even stay awake for an hour? Could you not even stay awake for one hour? You know, I'm often convicted when I think about how many TV shows we can watch in a row or how long the movies we watch are, but we start praying and the Sandman shows up. We get sleepy. We fight through that drowsiness and that tiredness. It never happens except when we're trying to pray. And I think that the Bible gives us um, ample um, encouragements and exhortations to prayer because the Lord knows. Jesus said to Simon Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Therefore, be watchful and be prayerful. And so Peter tells us, first of all, that we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I don't think when he says self-controlled, he's speaking um, uh, against uh, physical drug or alcohol-induced insobriety. I think he's talking about the totality of the life, that our life should not be a life living hedonistically. He's mentioned, remember, in, in the former chapter that, or in the former section, that we're not like what we were. Once we spend enough of our time living in drunkenness and, and riotous living and worldly living and rebellious living, and now we are to live for the Lord Jesus. And so Peter, I think, is telling them, that a life of prayer is fueled by a a conscious, purposeful desire to be self-controlled and clear-minded. Now, I think when Peter says clear-minded, he has in view that we would have God's word and the truth of these things ever in front of us. One of the greatest motivations to prayer is to remember the consummation. I promise you that one of the greatest motivations, what will help your prayer life, more than anything, is to live in conscious, conscious recognition that the end of all things is at hand and realizing that the time is short and realizing, as Edwards said, that everything that needs to be done can only be done in time and everything that God wants us to do can only be done in time and that time is short and that there's only so much time and that after time is no more, there is no more work that can be done. I think that that's a great incentive to a prayer life. Now, I think also it's interesting that what Peter is doing is he is emphasizing the role of prayer in spiritual warfare. In this book, there's great persecution. There's great suffering. He's going to talk about Satan, the roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. He's teaching them that the most needful thing they have as they go through persecution in the world and spiritual attacks of the evil one is a vibrant, fervent prayer life. I love this quote, John Bunyan who knew much about suffering and spiritual affliction, said, pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. I love that. Prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge 
for Satan. But I think Peter is also telling us and beginning <clears throat> this application by telling us that we're to live in light of the, the end of the ages in our relationship with the Lord by being self-controlled and sober-minded in our prayers because everything else flows out of that. Everything else that Peter's going to say about our relationships with each other flows out of our prayer life. I almost don't even need to tell you this. If you are living a prayerless life, you are living a powerless life. If you are living a life of bitterness or envy or complaining or discontentment, there is fundamentally at the root of that issue a prayerlessness. If you are living in envy or bitterness toward others, it is almost a guarantee that you are not praying for them. There is something that God has built into prayer that works in such a way that it enables us to live the Christian life even when it's difficult to do so. Notice what Peter now says. He teaches us that we are to live in light of the time in our relationships with one another. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter understands that it's hard to love people. Peter gets that there is a lot of unloveliness in all of us. Peter gets that there is a temptation not to love others because we see sin in others. And so Peter draws this proverb and he sets this, this proverb that Solomon had given so many uh, thousand years before and he says love covers a multitude of sin. The surest way for us to live in loving relationships with each other is to recognize that love enables us to forbear with each other doesn't mean that love shoves other people's sin under the carpet and ignores it and doesn't try to help them. It means that it doesn't single it out. It means that it doesn't put it out in the front. It doesn't become the topic of conversation in the home. Someone else's sin and what they did to me and what I did and what they said, and we all know that too, too well. And I think that Peter's telling us that a, a fervent, clear-minded prayer life fuels the need for us to live with fervent love towards one another and to be willing to cover a multitude of each other's sins. But notice he also gives us another application and gives us another challenge that we face. Notice verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, that's almost odd. That, that, it seems odd. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling until you remember Martha and Mary. Martha is serving, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, she's being hospitable, she's, she, is, she is fixing this incredible meal and this feast for the Savior, and yet Luke says that she is torn in every direction, she is anxious, and she begins to grumble, Lord, don't you care that my sister's not helping me? And she realizes the burdens of hospitality, and she realizes the challenges. We've been working through Tim Chester's book in Sunday school in the morning, uh, A Meal with Jesus. And one of the things that we read this morning that I found so helpful, he said, hospitality involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. Meals slow things down. Some of us don't like that. We like to get things done. But meals force you to be people-oriented instead of task-oriented. It's a great quote. Hospitality involves sacrifice. And, and 
Sacrifice tempts us oftentimes to grumble and complain. Sacrifice can be painful. It can be challenging. It takes work to listen to other people. It takes work to get to know other people. It takes work to invest in other people and open our lives to other people. And yet Peter says, listen, the time is short. The ends of the ages are here. That, that, that Christ is coming again. Therefore, and this is beautiful, Jesus is coming back, so be hospitable and do it without grumbling. One of the greatest ways that you can show that you are waiting expectantly for Jesus is to be a hospitable people. It's one of the greatest ways that you can show that you are expectantly waiting on Christ is to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then, <clears throat> in living in light of, of the time in all our relationships, Peter talks about relationships in the church proper. Notice verse 10 and 11. He sets out some gifts that occur in the church. Not everybody has them. When he says, let him who speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles of God, he's speaking about teachers and preachers in the church. He's saying, don't peddle the word. He's saying, speak boldly, speak, speak with confidence that, that God is speaking, that the word of God are the oracles of God. It is the living and abiding word. It is the word by which we were brought uh, into new life, Peter tells us. It is the word by which we are sanctified and transformed. And that means if we believe that Christ is coming, we will not peddle the word if we're called to speak the word. And then he tells the church, and everyone falls under this next category. Notice he says, um, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, it's interesting that Peter is not calling us to greater fleshly determination. It is actually possible that we hear the things that Peter's saying and we beat ourselves up for not being more vigilant in hospitality. We beat ourselves up for not being more diligent in service. We beat ourselves up and then we decide, well, I'll do it. I'll do it and I'll be strong about it and I'll, I'll, I am committed to doing it. And so we fail, and then we get discouraged, and then we stop doing it. And notice that Peter is building in to all these commands about how we should use our gifts and ministry to one another an absolute dependence on the grace of God. Notice, you might miss it. He actually uses forms of the word grace in numerous ways. In verse 10, he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then notice again that he says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, that in everything that Peter is calling us to do, there is an absolute reliance on God having given the, and supplied us with what we need. We've been redeemed by Christ. We've been given gifts. God has called us to service. He has set us working. We are sojourning together, and we are to think about each other. I love this quote. John Calvin says, if we excel others in any gift, so as we assess ourselves, if we excel others in any gift, let us remember that we are as to this, the stewards of God, in order that we may kindly impart it to our neighbors as their necessity or benefit may require. It's interesting that while Peter doesn't come out and say this in a propositional statement, he is in a very real sense saying that 
I need you and that you need me and that each of you need each other and that God has, has manifested his manifold grace to his people by giving gifts to them. It's everything that Paul says in Romans and that the body needs that. And I believe that one of the surest ways to help us sojourn to glory together is by us realizing if I excel someone else in this gift, it is my responsibility to realize that I am nothing but a steward of the grace of God, that God has entrusted those gifts to me, and that I love the way Calvin says this, we are to kindly impart these gifts to our neighbors as their necessity or benefit may require. Finally, thirdly, Peter is telling us that we are to do all that we do to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw this this week, but the Atlanta fire chief who was fired several months ago for writing the book, the, the, he's a Christian who wrote um, actually a, a fairly theologically accurate book. I went and looked through a portion of it is now being called out on major news channels for saying that he wants to live his life to the glory of God. And it's almost humorous that the world doesn't even know what that means. They're saying, what does that mean? Is he looking for a theocratic domination? No, he's not. He's saying in whatever he sets his hand to do, he wants to bring honor and glory to God through Jesus. It was the most humble, way anyone could have said it. It was in his public speech, his very short public announcement. He said, I want to live my life to God's glory. I want to see others blessed. I want to see the grace of God manifested in people's lives. And now he's being raked over the coals publicly, not for what he said about homosexuality, but for saying that I want to live my life to the glory of God. At the end of the day, the surest way to know that you're going to make it to glory and the best way to progress through this world is to consciously say, I have been created and redeemed to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. And that means in my relationships, in all that I do, in my prayer life, in my ministry to others, in showing hospitality and using the gifts that God's given me, the goal is that God, notice what Peter says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that we live so far short of the privileges that we have in your Son, and we know that we have failed in many times and in many ways to live as those who know that uh, the time is short and that the ends of the ages have come upon us and that that. Um, you are at the door, Lord Jesus, and that your coming is imminent and that you have told us to watch and we have failed in many ways and we pray that you would build us up and encourage us. Father, we pray that you would remind us this evening that we have been redeemed by your son, that he has purchased us with his blood. The precious blood of Jesus is of the lamb without spot and without blemish. We pray that you would make us to be serious-minded and clear-minded in our prayer life. We pray, our God, that you would make us a people who are full of love and hospitality and who seek to bless each other. We pray that you would give us grace to use our gifts in ministering to each other. And above all, Lord, we pray that you would teach us what it is to live to your glory and to the glory of the Lord Jesus in all that we do. Father, help us. We are poor and we are needy and we are utterly 
reliant on your grace and mercy to us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.